Thank you, Zach and Levi, for that. I love getting the children of MCAC to do the um, service because they never say no to me. <laughs> Whereas uh, some of the adults um, say no to me. So um, this way, I hope the adults also see that, you know, um, it, I understand that public speaking is not easy. There's a reason why it's like the number one fear of most people. And so there's no stress and no pressure from me um, to do welcome announcements and prayer. But if it's something that you would like to practice doing or if you would, um, if you don't mind doing it, then um, yeah, I'd appreciate it. Um, if you let me know, and that way I'll, I'll keep you in the, in, the, in the roster of people that I ask. And I'm sorry that I keep bugging some of you <laughs> about it. Um, but it's lovely to have the children um, becoming older and like they can read and, and um, they're growing in confidence. And so it's wonderful to see that. We're taking a short little break from our series on exploring God's mission because today is Global End It Now Emphasis Day. End It Now is a global initiative by the Seventh-day Adventist Church launched in 2009 to raise awareness and advocacy for the end of violence against men, women, and children around the world. And this year, the theme is Abuse of Power. And we don't have to look very far and wide to see abuse of power. It's everywhere. With power comes privilege, and many in power fail to have healthy boundaries um, and accountability, and the end result is pretty tragic. And while we shake our heads at stories of the moral failings of leaders and institutions, if we were really honest with ourselves, we would see in our own hearts the propensity to justify our own choices and behaviors while judging the choices and behaviors of others. For example, if we're late, well, there was traffic, there was an incident, someone delayed us. But if someone else is late, they're irresponsible, inconsiderate, wasting our time. If we're angry, well, there was a good reason, we're human, they caused it. But if they're angry, they're immature and out of control and petty. If we're successful, we worked hard, we earned it, we're being rewarded. If they're successful, they were lucky, they had connections, they're imposters. Thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought while demeaning or denying others is the incubator for a lot of pain in the world. And we call this kind of self-focused thinking pride. While we often think of a proud person as someone who is quite arrogant and full of themselves and talking about themselves and thinking that they're smarter and better than everyone else in the room, there's a deeper, more insidious manifestation of pride that the Bible presents. In Psalm chapter 10, verses 4 to 6, it says, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do me harm. The biblical view of pride, the definition of pride, is anywhere, anytime, any area that is not surrendered to God, that does not acknowledge and seek God. When we attribute our giftedness or good works or successful outcomes to anyone or anything other than God, when we crave that affirmation and applause from others, pride lurks in the parts of our lives that we don't want to surrender to God, 
where we want to be in control, where we don't want to be told what to do by God or by anyone else. Pride is complacency. I would never do that. That will never happen to me. Pride grows when prayers cease, when we fail to seek God because we don't need or trust him anymore. Pride is not wanting to admit or show weaknesses, and so putting up masks, pretending we are fine, that we have it all together, putting up barriers between ourselves and God, others, and even to ourselves. Pride is not taking time to get to know other people because we've decided they're not worth our time and effort. We become blind to our faults, blind to our biases, blind to the walls that prevent intimacy. And eventually, pride causes incredible alienation and pain. So what's the antidote to, to pride? Okay, we, we know what the effects of pride are. We have seen the devastating consequences of pride in individuals' lives and in the community. So what is the solution? And I present to you that the antidote and the solution to the suffering that pride causes is humility. But what is humility? It's not just downplaying our achievements and abilities. It's not just about, it's not about how assertive or how passive we may be. It's not about the role or the position we hold in society. And it's not having a low opinion of oneself. The biblical view of humility is the opposite of pride. So pride was not acknowledging God. Humility is depending on and trusting in and acknowledging God. Proverbs chapter 2, 22, verse 4. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. We talked about this concept before, that the fear of the Lord is this correct understanding of who God is, that he is the creator, right? He is the master of the universe, that he is the powerful, merciful judge. And understanding who we are, that we are the creation, that we are the redeemed, and being able to understand that and, and being in that awe of him and understanding that God is worthy of our worship. That is the fear of the Lord. And humility comes from that correct vision of who God is and who we are in relationship to him. There are several terms in Hebrew for humility, but the one that is most commonly translated as humility is the word anava, which is used in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Now, this is kind of funny because we attribute the book of Numbers to Moses. Um, and so did Moses write this? Or did someone else add this commentary in Moses' book? Because it says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now the thing about humility is that the moment you say I'm humble, you are now disqualified, right? So there's a good chance that this is a side commentary by someone other than Moses, just like at the end of Deuteronomy when it talks about the death of Moses, you know that Moses didn't write that. So someone obviously added their commentary um, in the writings of Moses. So there's a little parentheses verse that says Moses was a very humble man. What made Moses such a humble man? Now, Moses was uh, a son of slaves in Egypt, born around 1526 B.C., when Pharaoh, most likely uh, the I, um, ordered all the Hebrew baby boys to be killed in order to call the population to keep the slaves down. 
His mother hides him in a basket,、um, you know, in the bulrushes of the Nile River. The princess comes out and discovers him, adopts him as her own, and he grows up in the palace, right? Well, he grows up with his mom for some time, and then he grows up in the palace as a prince of Egypt. Now, looking at the story of Moses, and the question becomes: Well, what made Moses so humble? What does it mean that he was a humble man? We get a, a hint of what what was such an admirable quality about him in Hebrews chapter eleven. In Hebrews eleven, the writer says this about Moses: It says, "Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for." By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw Him who is invisible. You see, Moses gave up power. Position and privilege, in order to prioritize God and His people, and he and he chose, you know, after、um, he did get exiled from from Egypt for standing up for one of the slaves who was being、um, harshly treated by a taskmaster, and after forty years in the desert, he actually comes back to this land, right, risking his own life, risking. Um, you know, he had a, he had not a like not a high position life, but he had a comfortable life, family, kids, in 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 his、uh, in Midian, with his sheep, he was perfectly happy. But because he prioritized God and His mission, he comes back to the place that for him had so much、um, personal loss and a place that.、Uh, Had personal security threat as well in order to lead the people out. This downward sacrifice is the biblical view of humility, and of course, the ultimate example of this is Jesus. Paul, a first-century theologian and missionary who also gave up position, privilege, and power to become a follower of Jesus, wrote in Philippians chapter two, verses three to eight: three to eight "Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit." Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This downward mobility, right? In society, everything in the world、uh, values upward mobility. The idea of of climbing the ladder, the idea of of ups, of、um, you know putting yourself so that. Not only are you improving in society, but that your children after you will be in a better place than where you were. But here comes Jesus, and he does something incredible by going from the glory of heaven as creator of the universe to being a clump of cells in a young woman's womb. That is extraordinary humility. 
He was born in a stable and placed in a manger to a poor carpenter's family from Nazareth, a shady town in a small colonized country. His followers were a bunch of bickering misfits. He owned neither house nor land. He was falsely accused and crucified, a crown of thorns twisted onto his head. Isaiah says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. Wilmer Villacorta in his book, Tug of War, The Downward Ascent of Power, describes how Jesus is portrayed as a lamb, a vulnerable and humble creature, to highlight his humility. This willing surrender and sacrifice of power and privilege were completely countercultural. The Greco-Roman world of Jesus' day valued honor and reputation and glory. For example, the Emperor Augustus wrote a 2,500-word inscription on bronze tablets describing his 35 accomplishments, and he distributed copies throughout the Roman Empire and had them read aloud to praise him. He wrote of himself. And this was what was honorable. This was what was uh, commendable. This was the value of the Greco-Roman world. And here comes Jesus who raises the dead and gives sight to the blind and tells them, don't tell people. He turned this entire concept of honor and glory on its head by girding himself with a towel, stooping down and washing his disciples' feet. What's more, he died in a very shameful way. The cross was an object of utter humiliation and condemnation in his day. Today, after 2,000 years, we look at the cross and we know, you know, we have a positive uh, association with it. But in Jesus' day, the cross was symbol of utter humiliation and shame. But Jesus willingly took it up. And the paradox of Christianity is that he calls us to do the same. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The paradox of Christianity is that in giving up, we gain. One of the things we gain from humility is a clear sense of identity. Humility provides an accurate assessment of ourselves that is free from the measurement of others. Again, quoting from Willard Villacorta, he writes, Human identity seems to depend on what one is able to do beyond oneself, to exercise influence on someone or something, to make things happen. In optimal conditions, most people feel good about themselves when an achievement confirms their worthiness whether specific tasks and their outcomes or good deeds for a great cause, these take place in a personal space, giving us an internal satisfaction, adding to our sense of being relevant and effective. But when the opposite happens, when our plans go awry or we experience defeat, we face turmoil, fear, and confusion, along with indescribable feelings of insecurity and doubt, then what happens? Human identity is intimately tied to our sense of power. To lose this power feels as though a deep sense of worthlessness weighs upon our soul. 
This is a natural outcome of our fractured human condition, and a reason why it mattered to God that we would become free people, living and depending on a new source of power. Did you catch that? So much of our self-worth, right? And our sense of security and happiness is dependent on our achievements and on the opinions of others. But when we embrace humility, then our experience with power is no longer about the external things, but we understand that our sense of worth is entirely wrapped up in who we are internally as children of God. Humility is the power that frees us from the anxiety of pleasing or disappointing others. It gives us a new understanding of our identity that is rooted in who we are with God. This is why Jesus, even though he was the most humble man, you see him being able to be assertive. You see him saying very uh, clearly, without any shame, without any diffidence, I am the Son of God. I am equal to the Father. And when we understand our relationship with God, we can also have that sense of clear identity. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We are already children of God, created in his image, capable of extraordinary things because we are his beloved. And when we understand this, then we are no longer motivated by insecurities or wanting to please others, living up to the expectations of society. Henry Nguyen was a Dutch priest who, after decades of teaching at academic institutions like Harvard, went to work instead with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities at Large Daybreak Community in Canada. And there he was paired with a young man named Adam, who was a member with profound developmental disabilities. And as Henry Nguyen spent time with Adam, he had this profound realization And he writes, he wrote a book called Adam, God's Beloved. And he writes, Adam was sent to bring good news to the world. It was his mission, as it was the mission of Jesus. Adam was, very simply, quietly, and uniquely there. He was a person who, by his very life, announced the marvelous mystery of our God. I am precious, beloved, whole, and born of God. Adam bore silent witness to this mystery, which has nothing to do with whether or not he could speak, walk or express himself, whether or not he made money, had a job, was fashionable, famous, married, or single. It had to do with his being. He was and is a beloved child of God. It is the same news that Jesus came to announce, and it is the news that all those who are poor keep proclaiming in and through their very weakness. Life is a gift. Each one of us is unique, known by name, loved by the one who fashioned us. Unfortunately, there is a very loud, consistent, and powerful message coming to us from the world that leads us to believe that we must prove our belovedness by how we look, by what we have, by what we can accomplish. We become preoccupied with making it in this life, and we are very slow to grasp the liberating truth of our origins and our finality. We need to hear the message announced and see the message embodied over and over again. Only then do we find the courage to claim it and to live from it.
You see, when we understand that we are beloved of God, and period, we are, then we don't have to prove anything to anyone. Jesus didn't have to prove himself when Satan tempted him in the wilderness and said, if you are the son of God, then do this and do that. And Jesus said, I don't need to prove myself to you. And neither did Jesus have to prove himself when he was on the cross and the crowd was jeering him, saying, if you are the son of God, then come down and save yourself. And because Jesus had that humility in knowing exactly who he was in God, he did not have to defend himself. When we too understand that we are children of God, even if others misunderstand us, even if others judge us, even if others um, you know, misinterpret our actions and demean us and devalue us, we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to defend ourselves because we are secure in who we are in God. That is the healing power of humility. It frees us from the exhausting striving for accomplishments and accolades. It frees us to be generous and to make room for others. It frees us to prioritize doing right rather than being right. It frees us to let go of our constant grasping for control. It frees us from shame about our past and from the anxiety about our future. And it frees us from the fear of failure. Proverbs 11 verse 2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Wisdom to discern between right and wrong. Insight so that we don't feel lost and confused when making choices. I've been thinking about humility for a few weeks now. At first I was preparing it for a small group um, at our house last Friday. And the more I thought about this concept of humility, the more I've come to the conclusion that it is the foundation of all virtues. Think about it. It's hard to love someone well if you're not humble, if you're not willing to open up your heart and be vulnerable to someone else. It's hard to have faith without humility because humility is acknowledging that you don't have all the answers. It's hard to be a good leader without humility because a good leader is able to serve, be transparent, and empower other people and make room for others so that they can shine brighter than you. Fourth century theologian Augustine said, It was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. Imagine if everyone around you, including yourself, became more humble. What would your workplace look like? What would your family look like? What would our community look like if we all embraced humility? Humility is the path to peace, healing, intimacy. So how can we grow in our humility? So if this is the path and the foundation to uh, the character that we want and the kind of relationships we want with God and others, how can we grow in our humility? Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make, uh, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment 
to your bones. See, humility is about trusting and submitting to God rather than following our own gut feelings. I was watching a TED talk the other day that talked about how um, the millennial generation and generations thereafter, right? We've been told just do what feels right for you. Do you, right? Be you, which is great to a certain point, right? It's about being comfortable in our skin. But to the extreme, it basically just <laughs> encourages self-centeredness, right? Just do what is right for you. Meanwhile, God is saying, hey, don't just do what is right in your own eyes. Because the truth is, we are often off course. Psalm 25, verse 9, he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. A humble person is willing to learn and willing to admit that we make mistakes and that we need to adjust our course or vision. Marjorie Thompson writes in her book, Soul Feast, sin means to be off target, like an arrow wrongly directed. Instead of being aimed towards God, we are aimed towards a distorted image of self. We are directed by self-centered desires, chained to unmet needs. That's the part that really got me. Chained to unmet needs, compelled by illusions about who we are and what makes us acceptable or important. We strive to be in control of our goals. Our state of misdirection makes us blind. Even if we think we believe in God, we try in effect to stand in God's place. As long as we are turned in on ourselves, we deny our essential dependence on God. We do not see how compulsively we try to manufacture our own security and meaning in life. This is why the Bible says in order for us to really see ourselves and where we are and and, um, our choices and our behaviors and our motives, that we really need the humility to surrender to God. James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. In other words, yes, we are God's beloved, but as God's beloved, in order for us to truly be in tune with God, with God's will, we have to constantly be willing to do some self-reflection, to allow God's spirit to search within our hearts, and to, to identify in our hearts that self-centeredness, that pride that lingers in our hearts. And we have to be willing then to confess our sins. I think this is um, something that over the years Christians have forgotten how to do or neglected to do. Right? We, we, we thank God for things and we might ask God to help us with certain things. But when's the last time you prayed a prayer of repentance? Really sat down and reflected and asked God to examine your heart, and then repented and apologized and identified how that sin has impacted you and those around you. At the end of today, I have a worksheet for you to take home where you can reflect on the common manifestations of pride. And the worksheet says that after you have identified the the kinds of pride that is in your heart and life, to ask God in prayer to forgive you of each and every one of those things. I hope later on that you take the time to do that, and it will be on the website as well. If appropriate, 
it's important not only to repent to God, but to apologize to, uh, to others as well. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Remember how I said I think all virtues rest on humility? It's really hard to forgive someone without humility. Humility is what reminds us we are all human. We all make mistakes. We are all capable of wrongdoing. So when someone wrongs us, we extend to them the same mercy that we want shown to us. And if we're struggling to forgive, it means that there, that pride is still that primary resident in our hearts. That we're still putting ourselves as judge instead of letting God be judge. We're still holding on to our bitterness rather than surrendering our pain to God. Humility is letting go of that bitterness, trusting that God is the judge and God is the wounded healer. Humility is letting go of the walls that we built, thinking that those walls will protect us. But humility is recognizing that those walls imprison us and giving God permission to break them down and make us whole. Jesus' disciples were always arguing about who was the best amongst them. Who was the most worthy to sit right next to Jesus? And Jesus said to them in Matthew chapter 20, 25 to 28, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus shared here a crucial lesson about greatness, that it does not come from ambition or talent or pedigree. It comes from a humble heart of service. When we do kind things for someone, especially for someone considered insignificant or unworthy in society's eyes, we are participating in God's work. And it's when we are in that work of service that the insecure drives to be first fades away as we realize just how blessed we are. Ultimately, humility comes to us as we follow Jesus in his descending path. He invites us to step in and walk this road because it is the way of the cross, the dying of self. It's a counter-cultural path. Everyone is trying to go up. And Jesus says, come down, humble yourself, and I will exalt you. I pray that as we follow Jesus and his example of sacrifice and surrender and service, that we will experience the incredible healing power of humility that leads to life and resurrection and reconciliation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we have so much pride in our lives and our hearts in the world around us. And we need your Holy Spirit to help us to intentionally empty ourselves 
to intentionally surrender that those parts of our lives and, and hearts we've been clinging so hard to because we don't want to let go of control. But Father God, help us to realize that humility is the path to healing. That humility is the path to, to peace. Peace with ourselves and peace with others and peace with you. And help us in our, in our moments of self-reflection and prayer to have the conviction to not only confess our sins of pride, but to embrace the, the healing of humility that you want for us. I pray that as a result, we can be agents of peace, agents of healing. And Father God, I pray for those who are sick or, or, or um, traveling this week, um, some who are preparing to travel as well, that you would watch over them in a special way, that wherever we go, Lord, we would be able to bring about that spirit of humility that as a result, people can come to know you. We pray in your son's name. Amen.